Hello everyone, I'm your host, Jacob Thomas, and this is The History Book. Today on the show, we'll be talking about natural disasters, steel millionaires, and the Red Cross. So pull up a chair, and let's get into the story of the Johnstown Flood. Good August afternoon to all you out there, and welcome to The History Book. As the introduction said today, we are going to talk about the Johnstown Flood of 1889. So to begin this week's episode, I'm going to start with a brief background of the town of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Now, Johnstown was for- founded in 1800 by Joseph Johns, who was of Swedish descent, at the point where the Stony Creek River and the Little Coma form into the Coma River. Now, sort of jumping ahead about 60 or 70 years into the future, uh, Jonestown had been a primarily agricultural area and was not did not have a very large population. However, very soon after the industrial boom in the United States, Carnegie Steel built a mill near Jonestown and quickly transitioned the town from primarily agricultural to an industrial uh, boom town. Uh, this transition would also create a boom in population for Jonestown and the communities surrounding it. Now, since Jonestown Johnstown was downriver from these er, from these rivers, and in order to help control the rivers cro- crossing and allowing for easier travel, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania builds a dam up valley from Johnstown. The Commonwealth will shortly after sell the dam to the Pennsylvania Railroad because Johnstown, due to the mill mostly, had become an eastern terminal for the Pittsburgh Line. The railroad then sold the dam and the land surrounding it to Henry Clay Frick and other investors who built the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club, a resort for the rich and powerful of Pittsburgh and beyond. Now, two of these members are men you might recognize. uh, The industrial giant Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Mellon, and, of course, Henry Clay Frick himself, who we will talk about right now after this short break to tell you how you can stay connected with the history book. Hello everyone, this is Jacob, the host of The History Book, here to remind you that you can find The History Book on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as on our website, www.thehistorybook20.wixsite.com backslash thehistorybook. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back. As I was saying before the break, Andrew Carnegie and Henry Clay Frick had bought and invested in the land near the South Fork Dam outside of Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Now, taking a bit of a sidestep from the story of Johnstown, I'll give you guys a little bit more information on Andrew Carnegie and Henry Frick. Now, Andrew Carnegie was Scottish-born and immigrated with his family to the United States at the age of 13. His family, like a lot of immigrant families at the time, were poor, and his father passed away early on in Andrew's life, forcing him to have a job at the tender age of 13, where he worked for Tom Scott's railroad company. Despite his young age, Carnegie quickly rose up the ranks, and by 24, he was manager of the entire company, and Tom Scott had very much become a mentor, seeing the promise in Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie would go on to complete the first steel bridge over the Mississippi River, and as an aside in one of the really cool stories of all this, Carnegie has an elephant cross the bridge to show that it's safe. Uh, The bridge is built near St. Louis. In an area and all around the United States, there was a common belief that elephants wouldn't cross unstable structures. So once the elephant crossed, everybody else thought, oh, this is safe. Uh, Because 
steel was not considered a reliable structural uh, use. Did not have a reliable structural use. Now, as I was saying, uh, after a collapse in the railroad industry, sort of caused by John Rockefeller, who uh, takes away his oil from being shipped by these railroads, uh, this this incident really causes a down spiral in Tom Scott's life, who's, as I said before, Carnegie's mentor, and Scott passes away. Uh, Carnegie then sort of uh, swears an oath of vengeance against Rockefeller and says that he will become much more powerful and earn more money than Rockefeller. Now, as I was saying, after this collapse in the railroad industry, Carnegie's forced to uh, reevaluate how he's using his steel. And this is where Carnegie really transitions into what he's known for, and that is using his steel as structural steel and creates the skyscraper boom, which really skyrockets, quite literally, America into the sky. Now, in an effort to maximize his profits, Andrew Carnegie hires Henry Clay Frick as chairman of the Carnegie Steel to help handle more, let's call them, unsavory sides of the business and to mostly cut cost. Now, Henry Frick had built a reputation in his coke business, which is a processed coal, as ruthless and an intimidation to his competitors competitors. Hiring Frick would go on to become Carnegie's worst business decision uh, for many reasons. One of those reasons is Johnstown, obviously. Now, Frick bought the land near the South Fork Dam because, turns out, Frick could maximize profits. And with these profits, bought himself this piece of land near Johnstown. And at this area near the dam, he builds a South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club as a luxury resort for the rich and powerful and invites investors as such as Carnegie and Mellon to buy in, as well as a senator named Benjamin Ruff. Now, the club, with Frickens' charge, lowers the dam that's blocking in a large reservoir of water in order to allow two carriages to cross the road at once. And... Years before this, when the Pennsylvania Railroad was still in charge of the dam, they had removed overflow pipes to uh, sort of let water out of the reservoir when it was coming too too overflowed, too overflowed, and had sold them for scraps. And the club knew well were well well aware of this and did not uh, replace these pipes that would have helped ensure the structure of the dam. Multiple times, the Johnstown officials constantly warned of the dam breaking and asked the club to repair the dam, but they did not, instead making these changes, as I said before. Because of this, the town becomes sort of accustomed to warnings that the dam would break. Um, many a times they're told, the dam's going to break, time to leave, the dam's going to break, time to leave. Uh, but these warnings sort of begin to fall on deaf ears as sort of the boy who cried wolf kind of incident. Now, this aloofness, as I said, toward the present danger that was at hand would turn out to haunt the town. Now, right now, we are going to take a short break to hear from one of our sponsors. Thank you for tuning in to that sponsor break. 
uh, really the sponsor breaks have been incredibly uh, an incredible gift to me as is not only are they kind of cool to have in there to kind of show hey the podcast is growing but it's kind of cool to be able to say hey you know maybe someday it could make me a little bit of money which is always good I suppose uh, but as I was saying before the break and to get back to more serious subject I will uh, let's get back to Johnstown now the town is in clear and present danger and the storm has just begun now a few days before out in Kansas and Nebraska, gigantic thunderstorms had formed, and by the time the flood happens, they had moved over into western Pennsylvania and had poured rain into the area of Johnstown, which was already flooding as it was prone to do, being in a valley. There were reports of almost 10 feet of water already in the streets. The townspeople had already grown accustomed to this flooding and were moving belongings to the upper levels of their homes and really were preparing to wait out the storm. Now, on the morning of May 31st, 1889, Elias Unger, one of the caretakers at the South Fork Lake, notices that the lake is cresting over the dam walls and is rising at an inch every 10 minutes. And he quickly brings men in to try and save the dam, doing whatever they can, mostly with mud, uh, straw, and sandbags. They even tried to throw mud on top of the dam to sort of build it back up from where the club had already taken the dam to a lower level. He orders a telegram to be sent down to Johnstown for them to evacuate, but the message sent is ignored. As I previously explained, uh, Johnstown had really grown accustomed to being warned, and it's really a boy-who-cried-wolf situation where nothing would happen every time. However, this time, something is coming. At 1.30 p.m., Unger orders his men to a higher ground as they wait for the dam to eventually give, and at 2.50 p.m., give it does as the dam breaches and 3.843 billion gallons of water rush down the valley 14 miles to Johnstown. The tidal wave carried debris from homes, the mills, and nearby farms, as well as pieces of the dam, with a force that matches that of Niagara Falls and a 60-foot wall of water. 57 minutes after the breach, the wall of water would reach Johnstown, and destroy everything in its path, leaving this massive path of destruction in its wake that uh, some reports recorded as 14 acres of just complete barren land afterwards. Now the Pennsylvania Railroad had created a stone bridge that they were using as a crossing point near Johnstown, outside of the town. This bridge sort of acts as another dam, and it temporarily stops the water, but unfortunately, it completely stops the debris and the people that had been rushed away unknowingly into the tidal wave. This debris unfortunately caught fire, and 80 people die in the inferno. By the time the floods receive, over 2,000 people are killed, which was at the time 1 in 10 of the town. One third of these dead are unable to be identified as their bodies have been almost completely mutilated by the damage. Some bodies are found as far as Cincinnati, Ohio. The flood is the worst man-made disaster in the United States until the attack on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. Now, relief efforts would begin almost immediately after the waters recede, and a famous organization would have one of its first takes of action. Now, as I was saying, after the waters recede, 
and rescue attempts are made. Some very harrowing as one girl is rescued by uh, uh, what she calls her savior who, as she's floating down a, a dirty, muddy mattress in the tidal wave, he swims out to her, holds on to her, and men are standing on higher levels, grabbing people and rescuing them, and he throws the girl to these men, uh, some say almost 10 to 15 feet, they catch her and she survives. He, the man that rescued her, would later on go on to survive as well. As I was saying, after the rescue attempts are made, and this disaster area is sort of cleared to where people can go into it, uh, it becomes the first peacetime effort of Clara Barton's Red Cross. Uh, if you didn't know, Clara Barton was a nurse during the Civil War, and after the war, helped to form the Red Cross. Now, Barton arrived in Johnstown around June 5th, and she didn't leave for over five months. The Red Cross would end up raising money from not only in the United States, but also other countries, bringing in supplies and really contributing a great and immense amount to the rebuilding of Johnstown. The South Fork Club was sued by Johnstown victims, but they faced no punishments, as each time the club would be sued, the courts would decide that the flood was merely an act of God, and therefore the club was not liable for damages. This disaster would forever change Andrew Carnegie, who donated thousands of dollars to the relief efforts, along with Henry Frick and other members of the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club. Carnegie would build a library in Johnstown, which is currently used as the Johnstown Historical uh, Area's uh, museum for the flood. Uh, the Johnstown flood would be a major influence on Carnegie's future philanthropy that he's well known for. Neither the club nor Frick and Carnegie accepted any responsibility for the flood. However, Carnegie and Frick would also have other major issues after Johnstown. Now, after this tragedy in Johnstown, Carnegie and Frick's relationship was really strained by the flood, as well as some other labor disputes that were going on at the time, as this time in history in the United States is well known for. In order to sort of distance himself from the disaster and some of these labor disputes, Carnegie leaves for Scotland, informing Frick, you're in charge, and to make things better. Now, Frick would go on to really increase the labor issues where he would cut salaries as well as increasing the workload to 12 hours a day, which in a steel mill is nearly impossible. Uh, this would eventually lead to a shootout at the Homestead Steel Mill between Carnegie Steel Workers, almost 2,000 of them, and Frick hired Pinkertons in 1892. Carnegie's reputation will once again be severely damaged by this and he quickly begins to realize that Frick is very much becoming a liability. Now before Carnegie could remain could remove Frick as chairman of his company, Henry Clay Frick was the victim of an attempted assassination by anarchists during the Homestead strike. However, he survived two gunshots and four stabs by the man. While Carnegie had made multiple attempts to force Frick out, he would eventually be able to do so on December 5th, 1899 over 10 years after the Johnstown flood. Let's take a brief break and cap off the episode with what's coming next. As I did last week and sort of explained, I want to start giving more of my opinion on these topics that I talk about. And 
It would be a crying shame not to discuss my opinion on the Johnstown flood of 1889 and who is to blame for that flood. There's no reasonable way that I can look at the research I've done for this episode, which each episode does require a lot of research and time, and not immediately find some blame in the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club and primarily with Henry Frick. While natural disasters happen often, willingly ignoring changes that could have prevented the loss of 2,000 lives is completely unacceptable to me, which is what Frick and the officials at the club did. Blame lies with others as well, but primarily with Frick. Even with the money he donated to help build the city he allowed to be destroyed. Now, a lot of historians I've seen take the Johnstown flood to sort of give their take on human responsibility towards their environment. And will really equate what happens here to what is happening with climate change and uh, global warming. I know we don't call it that anymore. However, that's what I know it as. But really what what the human causes on climate change. However, those aren't the same here. What happens at Johnstown is a willing ignorance to completely allow this dam to deteriorate to the point of there was no way to fix it. I firmly believe that if humans wanted to fix what they're causing, what they may or may not be causing in the environment, they can. However, I don't think this is the kind of subject that should be equated with that. Now, someone else that I believe also deserves a pit of the blame for this incident is what I would think is probably a bit of an unpopular opinion considering I record about an hour outside of Pittsburgh and this man is sort of deified as some sort of industrial god and that is Andrew Carnegie. Yes, Andrew Carnegie does wonderful things after the Johnstown flood and his gifts of money and time are well known all across the nation as he builds libraries and concert halls and and universities are named after him. However, that does not take away the fact that Henry Frick was able to buy the club in part because of Andrew Carnegie. If Henry Frick had not been hired by Carnegie and maximized profit, Frick would not have had that money to buy the club. As well as the fact that Andrew Carnegie, Andrew Mellon, Benjamin Ruff were also investors in the club and also serve as officials and deserve part of the blame. Now that all that's been said, I think we can get back to more happier news. And that is that I'm ready to announce the next episode will be going live on September 9th at 1 o'clock. That episode will cover the Battle of Lake Erie of the War of 1812. Now, I'm really excited to share this with you because the War of 1812 doesn't get a lot of the history coverage that it really deserves. It's really just known for the burning of Washington and Andrew Jackson. And that's not fair. Uh, it, it unfortunately gets placed between the American Revolution and the Civil War and things leading up to it. So it doesn't get nearly enough attention. So I'm really excited to share this with you. Um, and as I said, it will be going live at 1 o'clock on September 9th. The Battle of Lake Erie. It's going to be great. Uh, and 
with that, I will see you all next time on The History Book.